From NPR, it's World Cafe. Hey, I'm Kaleo. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome back Getty Lee. The Rush frontman and bassist joins me to talk about his new memoir, My and Life. Sure, it'll tell you the story of his humble beginnings outside of Toronto in the 1950s and 1960s, all the way to achieving worldwide success with one of the biggest rock bands of all time. But it surprises in many ways. Rush fans may know that Lee was booted from the band early on, but did you know that he hadn't spoken to bandmate Alex Lifeson about the reason behind it until he started working on the book? Plus, we'll hear about Neil Peart's perfect audition— And Getty will explain why he devoted a chapter to his parents, both Holocaust survivors who met in a prison camp during World War II. Truly incredible stuff. Our conversation with Getty Lee kicks off in a minute after a bit of free will. It's Rush on World Cafe. with free will off of 1980s permanent waves from NPR. This is World Cafe. Thrilled to welcome back Getty Lee to the program. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame bassist and vocalist of Rush has a new memoir. It's called My Effin' Life. In addition, a new show on Paramount Plus called Getty Lee Asks, Are Bass Players Human Too? I'm Kaleo. Getty, so nice to talk again. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Kaleo. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, You've become quite the uh, burgeoning author in the last few years. When we spoke in 2019, it was for your first uh, release, Getty Lee's Big Beautiful Book of Bass. I know you said you were hesitant to write a memoir because you preferred to look forward rather than back. What was the spark that made you go, okay, I want to do this now? Yes, you're right. I had no real interest to write a memoir. And I was much more concerned about what I considered to be unfinished business, meaning the rest of my life. Um, But a few things happened to put me in a reflective mood. One, of course, was the passing of my dear friend and bandmate, Neil Peart. Um, That was a difficult few years through his illness. And when he did pass in January of 2020, uh, it kind of took us all aback, and uh, it was right at the same time that we were entering a lockdown uh, due to the pandemic. So there I was, kind of alone uh, with uh, this grief work that I was trying to do. At the same time, I was—I had the misfortune to watch my mom slowly descend into dementia, and. Uh, you know, that was a difficult and terrible thing as a, you know, someone who was very close to me to watch her go through that and to watch her memory uh, start to fade and play games with her. Yeah. So both of those things uh, started to prey on my uh, my soul in a way. And I kind of started to feel how tenuous our grasp of our memory really is and that it's it's you know it's not going to go on forever so maybe it's time to think about you know writing some of these things down 
Um, so along comes my co-writer for the big, beautiful book of base, Daniel Richler, whose father, of course, Mordecai Richler was a, you know, renowned author, a great Canadian author. Um, and uh, to keep ourselves entertained during the lockdown, he starts sending me what he called evocations, which were, um, they were stories about him and his dad. And then he'd write a short story, like, I mean, a very short story, you know, page and a half or something. And then at the end of it, he'd say, I want you to write me a story about something that happened with your dad. Yeah. And so I would write a couple of paragraphs. And we went back and forth like this for a while. And then suddenly he says to me that, uh, okay, your stories are getting longer and longer. Um, I think you're writing a book. and I think you should write a book. Now, I don't think he was just saying that to, to seek some more gainful employment. I think he really did feel that uh, it was something that would be good for me to do. And so all those other things, uh, to, to make a long story long, uh, all those other things I mentioned all contributed to the decision that I took to say, okay, I'll do it. But uh, my, uh, Daniel, I said, Daniel, you have to help me with it. So that's how we started. It's fascinating that you bring up the invocations and Daniel asking you to write a story about your father or maybe perhaps your mother, because while uh, the book is filled with essential great stories about Rush, it really, and I thought this was so moving, it, it almost serves as a biography for your parents and for your family. Can you talk a little bit about your parents? My parents were Holocaust survivors uh, who came over uh, from after they were liberated in Germany. They were born in Poland. They were from a shtetl uh, called Wierzbnik, which was outside of the town of Stachowice in Poland. And uh, they were liberated in Germany. My mom was liberated at Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And my father had a more, uh, a less clear story, but he was liberated, we believe, at Dachau. Uh, in Germany. And so they found each other again after the war uh, while my mom was living in a displaced persons camp at Belsen. But they had met in the work camps at the early part of the war. Um, they were teenagers. And my father is about five years older than my mom. My mom was, I think, at the outset of the war was around 12. I needed to explain their story and talk about the miracle it is that I'm even here able to write my memoir, let alone all that I've accomplished in, in my career. If you want to understand me, I thought you have to know where I came from and what my values were and, and how I came to those values. I also wanted it to be an homage to my mom in a way uh, because You know, she'd led a, a a very difficult life. Let's put it like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, and she told so many stories to us growing up, and she was one of those uh, parents that always talked about what happened to her in her life. And uh, I thought it's it's appropriate to to finally create a document um, for my children and and hopefully my children's children so that my family will have some sort of document about how we all came to this part of the world. 
One more comment on your mom because she is she shows up throughout the book and she's a tough, strong woman. Um, uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask about something a little bit humorous, which was the bar mitzvah painting, <laughs> not picture. Can you tell us what happened? Okay. Uh, I mean, I talk a lot about, um, you know, being a kid in this, in this new, new world family, this old world family that moved to the new world. And of course, uh, when I was 12, I started to grow my hair because I was into music and um, uh, I wanted to be cool like the rest of my pals. And so she was very upset um, with the length of my hair. And when I eventually had my bar mitzvah, which was in the middle of a very tough year because my dad had passed away that year. And so uh, we had a a kind of a, a much smaller, more humble bar mitzvah um, celebration, of course, because it was during the year of mourning for my dad. Traditionally, <laughs> you know, they they pose the bar mitzvah boy for a photograph uh, that they hang in an honored place in the house. And of course, my mom wouldn't do that because my hair was too long. So what she did was she took a picture of me from about a a year earlier, and she hired a painter, an artist, <laughs> to paint a version of me <laughs> that that in my all, all my bar mitzvah regalia, uh, but with the short hair from about a year earlier. So, uh, and that painting still exists, and uh, it hangs in my home <laughs> as a source of great conversation. I can imagine. I can imagine. This is World Cafe. I am Kaleo. We've got more with Getty Lee of Rush sharing stories from his new memoir, My and Life. Uh, in the meantime, let's pull out a track from the early days of the band from their self-titled debut album, Here's Working Man on World Cafe. Examples of Getty Lee lyricist work on Working Man from Rush's self-titled debut album. Getty talks about how it came to be in his new memoir, My F in Life, which is available now. I'm Kaleo on the World Cafe. So Working Man was an example, a situation where you were put on the spot quite literally when it came to being a lyricist. Uh, what happened? Okay, so um, going back now, um, we were playing the bars at the time in Toronto, and we were getting a bit of a reputation. And um, our manager was parading record company exec, execs in to see us uh, in these various bars. And of course, one by one, they rejected us. So eventually we decided, or at least our management decided that um, they would sort of fund a recording session so we could make a record independently. Uh, and it was kind of a bold move for that period. And so when we got the bed tracks done, it was time for me to do the vocals. And our lyricist at the time was John Rutzi, our drummer. 
And he didn't show up the night I was supposed to do the lyrics. And I had been singing some lyrics that um, I had kind of cobbled together uh, off, off the cuff during these bar gigs for these songs we'd written because I was waiting for John's final version of them. And so I had to sit down and scribble out the best version I could of what ideas I had been kind of singing on these songs. And I put I put all the songs together, uh, and that's what I did. And so that's how I sort of became the lyricist for that album. Yeah. And uh, shortly thereafter, the original drummer, John uh, Rutsey, leaves the band, and you find a, a new uh, lyrical partner or a new lyrical lead, uh, Neil Peart. Um, I was unsurprised with the description of the audition that you had, because uh, how could anyone compare? But can you sort of talk about that moment? You paint a really interesting picture of somebody you would not expect to to be the man who ends up in Rush. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we had never held an audition before. Right. And I don't think we'd ever actually been to an audition before. So, uh, you know, the first drummer came in and, and uh, uh, he, he was a guy we knew. And uh, he had actually filled in for John Rutsey when he was sick once. So that was an easy audition. And then um, this Ford Pinto pulls up and (laughs) out pops this guy, not wearing a shirt, (laughs) short hair. He's really tall. uh, He's lanky. He's sweating. And out of the, the trunk of his car, he's pulling these green garbage bags that have all his drums in them. And (laughs) And he kind of comes lumbering in and uh, sets up his drums. And, you know, we're thinking, Alex and I are thinking, geez, what a goof. And, you know, how's this going to go? And he sets up this small Rogers drum kit uh, with 18-inch bass drums. That's quite small for small. bass drums. I had never Maybe. really seen a kit that was kind of massive, but with such small bass drums. And he starts playing these triplets. They're just like, oh, my God. And... my jaw dropped like the power and the dexterity that was coming from behind this drum kit was truly awe-inspiring. We pulled out this uh, piece of music that Alex and I had written in 7-4 and we're jamming with it and this was a piece of music that our previous drummer John Russi had no interest in because he was kind of more of a straight-ahead rock and roll guy. Sure. But when we pulled this out, and Neil's playing along with it with such ease, you know, I'm thinking, this is, this is the drummer of my <laughs> dreams. Yeah. And uh, so, but Al is like giving me all these dirty looks. He's really, he's really mad at me uh, because we'd said before the, the rehearsal that you know, we wouldn't make a commitment till we heard everybody and there was one more drummer to come. So the fact that I was already, you know, Vibing with the this guy. guy. Yeah, it's like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> this is a one in a million. We are talking with Getty Lee of Rush here on World Cafe. Some great stories about the band and his new memoir called My Effin' Life. And uh, moving into just a little bit further ahead into Rush's career, you know, Neil helped 
push rush in more varied directions and time signatures, as you point out. You had a you had yeah. a uh, a cohort cohort in time signatures. And in the, there's a big fantasy element that starts to come into focus. And a perfect example is on the song from your sophomore album, Bitor and the Snow Dog. Um, <laughs> let's hear a little bit of it from 1975's Fly By Night. It's Rush with Bitor and the Snow Dog on World Cafe. Rush with Bitor and the Snow Dog. Now that is from 1975's Fly By Night. And we are talking with Getty Lee, the lead singer and bassist of Rush, just released a memoir called My Effin' Life. And in a bit, we'll talk about his new Paramount Plus show, Getty Lee Asks, our bassist human too. So I had known that you had been kicked out of Rush in the beginning, unceremoniously, I might add. But what the book revealed to me was that even though you were in the band not long after that moment, you'd never spoken to your bandmate and friend, Alex Lifeson, about that moment until you started working on the book. Yeah. Why? Well, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Um, the way it all went down, you know, we were kids, you know, we were really kids. And so uh, that day that I was informed by our our fourth member at the time, uh, who ended up becoming my brother-in-law <laughs> eventually, uh, Lindy Young. Um, and he told me that the band had broken up, Good, you know, so we, we, were, we broke up. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, I was kind of reeling from that, but uh, a few months later when John called me, and asked me to rejoin the band because their band that they had turned Rush into was a kind of disaster, yeah. uh, which I wasn't unhappy to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt so, uh, you know, sort of vindicated when John called and said, look, why don't you come back? You know, Al was sort of my best friend still in a weird way. And I wanted to play with them again. And so I went back happily and uh, we just went at it. And I never really, you know, put him on the hot seat as to, to what it really occurred. And so it was really nice to do that finally. Yeah, after decades <laughs> of friendship, uh, kind of probably coming out of the blue, what, what was that conversation like? Or what, what would you be willing to share about that conversation? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I asked him to come over to my house because so, I wanted to interview him for my book. <laughs> Perfect pretense, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we were having our usual laughs and, and kidding each other. And, you know, we have that kind of friendship. Um, and so I just put it to him. I said, so, Al, you know, when I got kicked out of the band, who really was the motivating factor here? Who was it? Was it the new manager, Ray? Was it John? Was it? And how did you, where did you stand on all of this? <laughs> like, did you defend me? <laughs> 
And he was looking at the ground a little bit, and he was saying, uh, well, you know me back then, Gad. You know, I was just the guy that, you know, sort of went along with things. And John was such a dominant personality, which he, he was. He was a very strong personality. And I I just think that, you know, Al just went with the flow, you know, and uh, he didn't really have an excuse or a strong reason. Was there anything that you learned from those conversations? Because you obviously, 50 years of friendship. Yeah, no, I did. You know, it's funny. You can share a life with someone. Yeah. And talk about a moment 45 years. And uh, you think you have the same experience. But what they remember, what you remember, are very different. And this is part of the game that writing a memoir is. You know, mm -hmm. you, you find out that your emotions at the moment really color your memory. And so you move forward and years later, you're looking back at that memory that's been enhanced or, you know, soured by the way you felt at the time. And yeah. so uh, I loved listening to Alex because we, we talked about the, the one terrible time that we had, we had to have this meeting with our management and they wanted to sign us to this long-term publishing deal and I was pushing back against it and Alex just folded like a dirty shirt and uh, <laughs> I put him on the spot and of course he you know he was embarrassed about it but you know he explained and he described the moment which I uh, which I put in the book and yeah. uh, exactly verbatim what he said and and uh, you know he talked about being in this manager's house and and feeling the pressure and uh, watching one of our manager's wife feed their dog this marvelous piece of beefsteak in their food and how he kept thinking, wow, I would love to have a steak like that, you know? So he's telling this fantastically detailed story and that's kind of how his brain works. But, um, you know, this is what happens to young bands. The manager comes along and they hold this carrot in front of you. The carrot is, this is a tour. I'm going to hypnotize you. This is a tour. This is a recording contract. Yeah. Just say yes, and this all your dreams advance. will come true. Yeah. And so, yeah, so he said yes. And I, at that point, had no choice but to cave in. But and, you would uh, figure, you kind of alluded to, you don't allude to it in this book, but you kind of figured it out that the publishing and those deals, like it was important to hold on to that stuff. And I don't think there are a lot of young musicians, especially at that time, because it's really unfamiliar ground, especially if you're a young band cutting your teeth, to know what the long-term importance of those those rights, the, mm. that ownership means. Absolutely. And everything in my whole system was screaming, error, error, error. <laughs> this, don't do this. This is, this is wrong. Now, of course, uh, this shouldn't happen anymore because we have this thing called the internet. And you can just go and punch in, what's a normal uh, publishing deal for uh, a band, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And you have all this information available to you. Well, we didn't have any of it. And we had the world's worst lawyer. And we didn't even show up for the meeting, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Comedy verse. So, yeah, it was just a flail. And, and fortunately, you know, we were with the same management people for long enough to negotiate uh, on our own behalves with, with an actual lawyer and improve our deals dramatically before it was too painful. <laughs> right. 
You're listening to World Cafe. We're talking with Getty Lee. Uh, his latest book is a memoir. It's called My F in Life. We've got more with Getty in a moment. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to get to one of Rush's biggest, if not biggest hit, Tom Sawyer. It's completely understandable in the moment because you don't know what you've got until it goes out into the world. But there was a moment you wanted to shelf this. Yeah, yeah. It was a, I was a, I can't swear on this show. So it was a very difficult song to record. I have to tell you, uh, every turn, uh, something was going wrong. And then when we came to mix it, there were all these technical problems because we were using one of the first computerized mixing consoles in North America at the time. That was in 1980, right? 79, 80. And there was this grounding problem and the song kept mixing itself. It kept remixing itself. So it was just nothing was working. And at one point I thought, maybe we just like forget this song and move on. But it just goes to show you, I wouldn't know a hit single if I tripped over it. <laughs> because, you know, there I was on the verge and even accepting the idea that maybe our most popular song ever would end up, uh, you know, in the trash can. Glad it's not. Let's listen yeah, to Tom Sawyer. <laughs> <laughs> All parties agree. Yeah. This is Rush on World Cafe. Tom Sawyer from Rush on World Cafe. I'm Kaleo. Speaking with Getty Lee, the Rush frontman and bassist has a new memoir called My F in Life that is out now. Um, there's a theme that, that I kept coming back to uh, reading through the book. And, you know, a lot of music autobiographies, there's so much pomp and circumstance around recording a classic or hit song. But not necessarily with you, as we sort of touched on with Tom Sawyer. I was not prepared for the term post-production blues. Um, right. <laughs> for, for our audience listening at home, how would you define that? Um, well, the comparable I make is when Woody Allen is talking, I think, in, in Annie Hall, and he says, uh, marriage is the death of hope. Uh, and I always took the that expression a bit applied it to music where I always felt mixing is the death of hope. Because, uh, you know, when you're making a record, uh, it's full of possibility. It's, it, I mean, it really is a wondrous process. It's like magic. And so when you come to the mixing part, which is the final, you have to review everything that's on the tracks and make some very hard decisions about how they need to be placed. And some of the things, maybe the nuances you've fallen in love with, maybe there's no room for them anymore. And I find that a very painful process. At the end, it's a compromise between your dream and the reality of what actually ended up on the tracks. And I find that, you know, very disheartening. Yeah. And so when we finish a record, I'm left with what we didn't accomplish more than celebrating what we did accomplish. And I will get there. It takes me a, a bit, you know, some weeks later when I've been away from it and I hear it 
fresh. I go, okay, that's, that's not bad. This is World Cafe. Uh, Getty Lee is my guest, and we're talking about his memoir, My Ethan Life. Um, something caught my eye because it came up more than once is that one of your influences when it came to some of your vocal performances, and I'm guessing this is later in your career, was Bjork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did how did that happen? Um, well, I got turned on to a couple of her rec- earlier records, and I just I just love them. I just love what she can do with her voice. Her voice is, uh, to me, just amazing, uh, powerful, emotive. And her songwriting is, you know, mercurial. It, it takes you on all kinds of different little trips, you know. And um, and I really appreciated that about her. And, and uh, when she came to Toronto in that period, I made sure I went to see her. And I, I loved it live, too. I think she's just one of the great singers of of the period I was fortunate enough to be functioning through. So, uh, yeah, and so all the people I admire, whether they're any kind of singer that I admire, somehow subconsciously something that Neil might have written, and when I see a word like that, somehow I come out and I pay a little homage with a certain affect that maybe is typical of something that singer will do. Now, don't ask me to pick them exactly out now, but I've, I remember listening back to some vocal parts and I go, oh, that note reminds me of something Joni Mitchell sang in this song, or there's a little Bjork moment there. There's a little, so they're my little odes, my homage to the singers that I love, you know? I dig it. I dig it. I think it would surprise some people, but, uh, and Bjork, not exactly a person that's easy to, um, emulate, you know, but you, you can pick things up everywhere. I imagine. Yeah. But I got a weird voice anyway. So (laughs) fair enough. Uh, It's Getty Lee here on world cafe. Um, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the TV show because I think this is a really cool project that you're working on. Um, uh, it's on Paramount plus it's called Getty Lee asks, are bass players human too? Now, I know you interviewed bassists for your first book, The Big Beautiful Book of Bass. Um, how did that evolve into a television show? Well, um, what happened was, uh, this was going back to when I was working on the memoir during lockdown. And uh, um, Sam Dunn, who is uh, one of the main dudes at Banger Films, who did our documentary our first documentary and of course has made a great reputation um sam and scott are the two kind of driving forces behind banger films and they've done a lot of really great rock documentaries metal document they're sort of the masters of the metal documentary and tv shows anyway so sam dunn calls me up he said you know i love your book i really do now he's a bass player so of course he better say that (laughs) (laughs) and he said is there something we can do is there a documentary we can do can we bring it to life in some way yeah and so i was excited by that idea i thought well that that would be fun and i remembered this conversation i had with bill wyman now bill is a fascinating person Uh, sure Aside from spending most of his life in the biggest rock band on earth, (laughs) uh, he wanted to talk about everything else other than bass guitars. So, you know, this is a man who's written 
nine, maybe 10 books. Uh, he's invented his own metal detector for people with small hands. Uh, he's <laughs> found relics that on his property that, that are in the British Museum now. He's the only musician who has ever hit a hat trick at Lords cricket. So um, this is, he's a butterfly photographer. He's an interesting dude off stage, you know? Yeah. So I just thought, you know, I have a lot of interests off stage. I, you know, I am crazy about a whole bunch of other things. And, and when I finish a tour, I go out and do, you know, hikes and bike trips and non-music stuff, non-music stuff. Yeah. So I thought, I wonder how many bass players also are obsessed with other things. So I said, wouldn't that be an interesting angle to, to do an interview show with bass players, but focus on their the totality of their life? Uh, Les Claypool of Primus, Melissa Oftemar of Hole and Smashing Pumpkins, Robert Trujillo of Metallica, and Chris Novoselic of Nirvana are the featured guests in the first season of the show. Um, I, I would love to go out, I'm putting a little bit of pressure on you here, uh, to go out with a pick from you. You had four g great guests. Is there a song from any of those artists that you would like to close out with? I love Les Claypool's bass playing so much, and I love him so much as a person. That has to be a Primus song. So maybe My Name is Mud. That's a good shot. That's a good one. Yeah. Getty, congrats on the book, the TV show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much. And please Thank come back for and see us again It's really always fun to talk to you. little bit of Primus, My Name is Mud, featuring another bassist slash frontman, Les Claypool. Les, one of the subjects of the new TV show streaming on Paramount Plus called Getty Lee Asks, are bass players human too? Getty Lee's new memoir is out now. It is called My F in Life. We're back in a minute with more World Cafe.